Well, welcome to the second part of our preaching series, this, this term called A Trial. As I said before, my name's Philip and it's great to see you. Charles Balasavage stood before Judge Chavarella, accused of handling stolen goods. Charles was 14 years old and his parents had brought him a stolen moped for $250. 2005, he was sentenced and served four years and ten months in a juvenile detention centre. Amanda Laura also stood before Judge Chavarella. She got in a fight at school over a volleyball match. Despite the 14-year-old having no history of violence, she served five years and 11 months in a juvenile detention centre. Judge Chavarella had a fierce reputation. He visited each school in his county, repeating his mantra, if you come up before me, I'll be glad to put you away. True to his word, thousands of young offenders stood before Judge Chavarella and received maximum sentences for their crimes. Four years for a shopping mistake, five years for a fight. Seems steep, we may think, but they broke the law and so justice must be served. Several years later, Judge Chavarella stood in the dock himself, awaiting his own fate. The detention centres that he was sending these children to were privately run, making their profit from the number of inhabitants and the length of their stay. Judge Chavarella had received over $1.6 million in bribes and kickbacks from the owner of the detention centres for the excessive sentences of juveniles. As he stood in the dock... In an act of egregious irony, his solicitor pleaded for a reduced sentence, claiming the judge has suffered enough already through the media attention after his arrest. It seems that Judge Chevrolet wanted to give out justice, but the last thing he wanted was to receive judgment. On August 2011, Judge Chevrolet was sentenced to 28 years in prison for his role in the Kids for Cash trial. It's an interesting story, true story. And I think it tells us something quite, tells us two things that I think are quite interesting. One quite obvious, maybe one a bit more subtle. The more obvious thing is it shows us, if anything like me, as you hear that story, your dislike for justice, sorry, your dislike for injustice and your desire for justice begins to bubble up in me. If anything like me, you feel indignant when you think of that kind of injustice taking place, especially at the hands of somebody who's there to ensure Justice takes place. Feel indignant about that. But the second thing I think it shows us, perhaps a bit more subtle, is I wonder, I've been wondering, is there something of Judge Chevrolet in me and maybe in all of us? You see, Judge Chevrolet wanted hard justice for others. After all, all of those young offenders had committed some kind of offence. But when his own corruption was exposed, he was much less keen on justice and tried to wriggle out of it. You see, if you're anything like me, we want justice. We're not quite so keen on being judged ourselves. And this series of talks is called The Trial, and it's based in the book of Romans, as I mentioned last week. And I've called it The Trial because Paul, who's the author of the book of Romans, uses this legal framework, this legal language to explain the Christian gospel. So throughout Romans, he consistently uses like a, he looks through a legal lens, if you like, to explain the nature of the Christian gospel. And that's why we've called this series The Trial. 
And so each week we're going to look at one aspect of the gospel, if you like, through the legal lens that Paul uses in that first letter to the Romans. Last week we looked at the nature of order being brought by the gospel. So turn with me please to Romans chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 1 to 8. If you have a church Bible, it's on page 1132. And you'll see that in this passage, Paul begins to dig or probe quite hard at the idea of God as judge and as deliverer of justice. Paul begins to probe at the, at the, the, the senses that we have about God as judge and about God as the deliverer of justice. So, Romans chapter 2, verses 1. Therefore, this is Paul writing to the first church in Rome, first century. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And before that, Paul's just listed a whole load of things that all of us at some point would have done or said or thought. Verse 2 We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, that you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed." He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Hmm. One of those passages that much of us in modern society can find quite unpalatable. See, modern society has largely rejected the notion, hasn't it? that there is a God who judges, a God of wrath, a God of fury. And maybe you, you brought a friend this morning because you're always saying, Philip, you tell us something about friends and you have, and here's me about to launch into a God of wrath and fury. And it does make us feel uncomfortable. Modern society has largely rejected this notion that there might be a God of judgment. It is a distinctly unpopular concept. I had looked through the Amazon bestsellers this, this week, the books in the Amazon bestseller list, and there are books in there like The Art of Happiness, and the power of now, a guide to spiritual enlightenment. I did not find any entitled the art of judgment or the power of judgment. There's a very different flavor in that Amazon bestseller book list. But I want to suggest this morning that actually as a society, modern society, we actually haven't understood just how much we need a judgment day. Just how much we need a God who will one day, as the Bible teaches, bring things to a culmination and conclusion and judge all. I want to suggest we've missed out on how much we actually need that. So I'm not going to give you my my four points straight away, but just the first one is we must have a judgment day. We must have a judgment day. Now, I know the idea of judge, of course, seems forbidding and dark and a bit scary. little image pop up behind me here in a second. It's the kind of thing that might come to mind when you think of a judge. Someone bearing down at you, looking down at you from the bench on high to us down below. It's a very intimidating, dark and forbidding vision sometimes. 
We do feel that. And yet, Jesus had some interesting words to say about the nature of judgment. In the same passage, so it's not, I'm not just plucking two verses from different contexts. In the same passage in the book of John, so John's gospel, John's description of Jesus' life, in the same passage, Jesus says very clearly, I am the judge, I will come to judge. In fact, he said often. But in the same passage, he also said, I am the light into darkness. So for Jesus, actually, he was coming to shine light into darkness. That was the definition of his judging. For Jesus, for there not to be judging means that we remain in darkness. Without the judgment of God, Jesus said, we remain in total darkness. And that, I would suggest, is something that modern society hasn't really understood. There's a guy called Tim Keller, who's an American church leader, who's really helped me with this particular talk. And he pointed me towards two modern writers who I think really dig helpfully into the nature of how much we need a judgment day. So most of my illustrations tend to come from the world of sport. This is a dramatic departure from me, and I'm into the world of theater. Um, this, is, this is progress, sanctification in action. Reece Recently, I went uh, on my day off. It was a Monday, and I had a, I had a day off. I went to London and went to watch a favorite play of mine called Death of a Salesman by Arthur Miller. You may have heard of it. And Arthur Miller also wrote another play, wrote many plays. And one of the plays he wrote was After the Fall. And in After the Fall is a character called Quinton who says, I think, quite a remarkable thing about this nature of judgment. I'm going to read the whole quote to you, and the key bit will come up on the screen as I'm concluding. This is what Quinton, Miller's character, says. He says, for years I looked at life like a case at law. It was a series of proofs. When you're young, you prove how brave you are or smart. Then, what a good lover. Then later you have to prove what a good father. And finally, you try to prove how wise you are or powerful or whatever. But underlying it all, I see now in all of my arguing, there was a presumption that I was moving on an upward path towards some elevation, that eventually I would be justified or even condemned for what I'd done. There would be a verdict anyway. I think now that my disaster really began when I looked up one day and the bench was empty. No judge in sight. And all that remained, I realized, was the endless argument with oneself, this pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench. I think it's really remarkable what this character, Quinton, is saying. And I guess Quinton is effectively Arthur Miller's vo you know, voice, isn't he? Arthur Miller is using him as a bit of a, a spokesperson. And if you know Arthur Miller, you would know that he kind of represents that 20th century trend of rejecting the notion of God. So Miller, like many in the 20th century, rejected the traditional idea of, of God who judges and heaven and hell and so on. And Quinton is, is just like that in the play. And initially he feels liberated by that. Until, he says, one day I looked up and I realized there was no one on the bench. And what does that result in for Quinton? It results in endless, meaningless litigation. And I think he's right because we will litigate. By that he means we will argue with ourselves and others. We will insist what is right and what is wrong. And Quinton, like modern society, knows that, of course, it's, there are things that are right and wrong. It's better to, better to be unselfish than selfish. It's, it's, it's wrong to, to crush weaker people and deprive them of power. It's much better to be honest with your work colleagues and stab them in the back. We know that. 
He knows we do believe it's better when we tell ourselves and each other what is right and wrong. But then, because he has rejected the notion of God, he suddenly realizes there's no one on the bench. There's no one on the bench of the universe, no judge. And so who decides what is right and what is wrong? There's no way you can say that one action is better or more meaningful than the other. Who's to say? The bench is empty. I really think Quentin has seen something quite profound. He's thought to get rid of God is liberating. There's no, I can do as I please. Who's to say what's right or wrong? And then as he gets towards the end of his life, he realizes, yeah, who's to say what's right or what's wrong? If the bench is empty, all I'm left with, he says, is endless, meaningless negotiation, litigation with myself and with others. And so what Arthur Miller is doing is exposing that classic myth that if there's no judgment day, we're liberated and free. Because what Quinton realizes is if there's no judgment day, what's left? And there's a second writer I want just to briefly look at who I think also really helps us understand this need for judgment. He's a man called Miroslav Volf. He's a Croatian philosopher and theologian. He's a man who would have seen and witnessed at first hand some of the horrors that Croatia went through in the Balkan Wars and so on. And the myth that Wolf wants to get into is another myth that I'm sure we're well, we're well um, acquainted with, or a truth you might say we're well acquainted with, which is the idea that if you believe in a judging God, a God who smites, a God of aggression, then you will become like that. You will become aggressive. You will become one who smites. You will become an imperialistic person, as the New York Times said only last week. Believe in that kind of God, you'll become a smiting, imperialistic, aggressive person. It's a common point of view. But Miroslav Volf says, really? You sure? This is what he says, and the main bit will appear behind me. Volf says, my thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. My thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. And he goes on to say this, it will be unpopular with many Christians in the West. But imagine for a moment speaking to people as I have, whose cities and villages have first been plundered, then burnt and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. And your point to them as you speak is this, we shouldn't retaliate. Why not? What will ever keep them from retaliating? I say this, the only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. Violence thrives today, secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword. It takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is the result of God's refusal to judge. You see, in a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, that idea will invariably die like many other pleasant captivities of the Western liberal mind. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. What is Wolf trying to say? He's saying a number of things. He's saying that anybody who thinks that the idea that on the last day there is a God who will pay back all evil and injustice, anybody who thinks that that idea leads to us being violent, 
hasn't actually experienced any injustice. He's saying you just haven't been the victim of serious injustice. He's saying when someone comes and does to you what my people have had done to them, you will pick up the sword. You will be sucked into that endless cycle of violence, which frankly is one of the key causes of misery today. He's saying you will be sucked into responding like with like unless you realize there is a judge and no one will get away with anything. You see what he's trying to say? Let me give you a, a story that I heard that I think is helpful. I heard a man telling a story of his brother. And his brother was a uh, special, uh, special services soldier. Seriously, highly trained soldier in America. And tragically, this man, the soldier, the brother, uh, lost his daughter to a horrendous murder. And the man telling the story said that he literally had to go to the police station and physically restrain his brother from getting straight into custody and killing the person that had murdered his daughter. And as he was telling the story, he said, what did I say in that? What could I say to my brother in that moment? Could I say, violence won't solve anything? What kind of society will we have? <laughs> the brother wasn't going to turn around and say, oh, okay, yeah, I hadn't thought of that. The only, he said, the only thing that stopped my brother, the victim, was for me to say, there is a judge and it's not you. That was the only thing that restrained his desire to wreak the same havoc upon the killer that had been wreaked on his daughter. And so Wolf is saying, if you think the idea of a judging God leads to more violence, it's probably because, like me, you haven't experienced much of it. You've had a very comfortable life. If we really want justice, Wolf is saying, and Quinton is also beginning to understand that. If we really want justice, we have to have a judgment day. An empty bench of no God or a westernized, fluffy, fluffy, diluted, toothless God doesn't actually get us anywhere. And Paul is indicating the same thing in his passage, typically bluntly. There is a judgment day. We need one. But the second thing that Paul says well, the second thing that he infers throughout the sweep of the first five chapters of Romans is not only must we have a judgment day, we can't hope to survive one. We can't stand it. We can't bear one. You can't possibly stand in a judgment day. So the two points so far are we need a judgment day and we can't hope to survive one. It's the gospel of good news, I promise. This is the teaching of the Bible. And I'm telling you, if you haven't fully understood both these two principles, you will not have a life fully transformed by Jesus Christ. The concept, the principle of us needing a judgment day and us not being able to stand in one. And Paul hints at how this judgment will take place. He says the judgment of God focuses on two things. One, on your heart, and two, on your works. One on your heart and two on your works. First of all, the judgment of God focuses on your heart. And we looked at this last week, didn't we? We said that all life, everything, the springs of life, all come from what's in our heart. And Paul says something similar in verse five of chapter two. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. 
saying it's all about what's in the heart. And it's fascinating to me that when you read all that Jesus said, and he talked about judgment an awful lot, but when you read his warnings about judgment, often, not always, but often, it's the religious leaders that he's warning. Why is that? Because they are the good, they're the good guys. They're the ones who behaved well. They obeyed the Ten Commandments. They believed in the God of the Bible. But he consistently warns them because he knows about the state of their hearts. The second thing that Paul indicates, which can sound contradictory, is that God's judgment is also based on our works. Verse 6, he will render to each one according to his works. This can sound a bit confusing, heart or works. And the teaching of the Bible tells us that we can never be saved by our works, and yet Paul here is saying that the judgment is on the basis of works. So how do we square those two things? Jesus provides a brilliantly helpful metaphor. Jesus says this, by their fruit, God will know them. By their fruit, God will know them. I don't have a garden. I don't think I will have a garden. We might do have a garden one day. I haven't had a garden so far. But I'm told when you do have a garden and you have trees in your garden, the way to tell which trees are alive is by looking at their fruit. Now, the fruit doesn't cause the life, does it? Fruit can't cause trees to come to life. What's fruit? Fruit is evidence of life. Fruit is an index of life. And that's what I think Jesus is getting at. Because he says some pretty challenging things about what else will be judged on. Matthew 25, he says God's judgment will be based upon our caring for the poor, our taking in the prisoner, our feeding the hungry. I'm thinking, pretty intimidating list. So God, because the fact that God looks at the works to find out what's in the heart, you see? God looks at the works to find out what's in the heart. The fruit is the index of life. A self-righteous, self-referential, closed heart versus a heart that is open to God, humble, needing his grace and mercy. Those two hearts will live different lives and their fruit will be evidence of what's in their heart. God looks on the heart and says, why did you do what you did? Why did you do what you did? I find that really scary. So it's quite possible that all of my church going and giving to charity and good moral lifestyle could count for nothing. Worse, it could count against me. (laughs) See, if my giving to charity and my church going and my moral lifestyle has come from a heart that's actually trying to prove myself to other people or to myself, or a heart that's trying to get God in my debt by doing some stuff so that he owes me, God sees what's in my heart. He sees past my works and sees the state of my heart. It's quite scary. There's another story in the Bible, which we love, the story of the prodigal son. Wonderful story of God's grace and mercy and compassion. I found that this week to be quite a scary story. I'll tell you why. The man in the story, two brothers, one who you know disgraces himself and comes back to the welcome of his dad. One who obeys all the rules, stays at home, the obedient son, and he is the one who ends up apart from God in the story. The obedient one, the law-keeping one, the one who did the right things. Why? Because of the state of the two hearts. How good is your heart is what God asks. Why do you do what you do? Judgment on the basis of our heart. That is terrifying. 
how am I going to stand on the judgment day of God when he can see all of my motives? Not just the things that I've done because I've learned to behave well, but when he can see the state of my heart, how on earth can I stand before him then? Like, never mind the obviously bad things I've done. There's a good list of those as well. So never mind the overtly bad things that I've done, that he's seen, that are disobedient to him, that completely offend his glory and holiness and perfection. Never mind those. What about the good things that I've done, but they came from a heart that was actually trying to manipulate or make myself look good? I can't stand. I can't stand that kind of judgment. You see, the gospel is different to both liberal relativism and what I call conservative moralism. It's different to both. You see, the liberal relativist, someone like Quinton originally, Arthur Miller, says there's no judgment day. Who's to say what's right and wrong? But with that mindset, who's to say what justice is? And when will justice take place? And what about the blood of the oppressed and the murdered that screams at? The liberal relativist concept doesn't help us at all doesn't help us at all. doesn't take the pressure off. But you've also got what I call the conservative, traditional, moralist, traditional, religious mindset that says, be a good person, do your best, there is a judgment day, and on that day you can be proud. Gospel's different to both of those things, two things. And actually, the second one, You want to talk about a belief that engenders oppression and imperialism and violence, it's probably more likely to be the second one because I'm good enough. The gospel is not that. The gospel is not that. The Bible says that it must be a judgment day and you cannot stand in it. It's like the Bible says there must be a judgment day and there can't be. And what Paul does in the first three, four, five chapters of Romans, if you read it all for yourself, is he helps you to feel the weight of that. He helps you to feel the weight of that. It's like, there's no hope if there is, and there's no hope if there isn't. You can't get rid of it, and you can't go into it. And you get to chapter five, and you're like, I need a savior. I need something to help me. Point three of four this morning. In Jesus Christ, we've already had our judgment day. In Jesus Christ, we've already had our judgment day. That's what Paul is getting at. That's what the sweep of Romans is getting at. The only way to stand in Quinton's shoes and to be able to handle the reality of the universe is if there is a judgment and it's already been passed. If you, in your Bibles, it won't come up on the screen, but if you jump in your Bibles down to verse 16... You see these wonderful words, chapter 2, verse 16. Paul says, On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of man by Christ Jesus. And that text is variously translated by Christ Jesus, through Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus. It's a deliberately multi layered meaning. It means that Jesus is both the judge, and that role is delegated to him by God the Father, and he's the judged. Let's look at those two things. The judge. What kind of judge is Jesus? Looking down from the bench on high, like the picture earlier on. I want to go back to John's gospel again, because I love the way that John describes Jesus talking about judgment. 
It's the same passage that I alluded to earlier on in chapter 12. John says that Jesus, quotes, cried out about judgment. Cried out about judgment. And I was looking at that, how that phrase is used through the New Testament. And it seems to engender a similar meaning every time it's used, cried out. It has, a, it has a combined meaning of kind of anguish and warning. Grief and intensity. It seems to carry that combined meaning all the way through the New Testament. If you like, both weeping and warning, cried out. Jesus is weeping when he warns. And he warns over and over again. I'm the only way to the Father. You reject the Father, you reject me. Judgment is coming. He says it over and over and over again to the point where modern Western churches like to tend to shut up. But he's weeping when he says it. No other religion says that. No other religion has a God who doesn't just warn about judgment, but who weeps his warning and comes down from the bench. Jesus is a weeping judge who descends from the bench. Secondly, he's not just the judge, he's the judged. Jesus comes down from his bench. He is judge, but he leaves it. He comes down and stands in the place of the accused. He is judged for us in order that justice might be served. Remember how much we want it? The indignation when we heard about the injustice of that first story and then our slight nervousness about, well, what about when it comes to me? Jesus ensures that justice is done by receiving all judgment. We don't worship a God who turned a blind eye to your and my injustice. Remember the state of our heart looked at before? We don't worship a God who just excused it, who just turned a blind eye to it. We worship a God who judged it fully upon himself. Jesus Christ is the judge who gets down from the bench and comes down into the dock. He's the one who says, I'm not going to stay above you. I'm going to get below you. I'm going to come down to the place where the prisoner in handcuffs is and I'm going to receive the judgment so that justice is paid. Jesus says that reason that you feel the need for justice is because I put it there. You're made like me. And I judged in order that it might happen. So what Paul is saying in Romans is the only way you can have a judgment and you've got to have one and yet be able to stand in that judgment is if he was punished for you. So to recap, we must have a judgment day. We cannot stand or bear a judgment day. But in Christ, we've already had our judgment day. And finally, I want to begin to bring some application to our own lives. In Christ, we can live between two judgments. We can live between two judgments. For the Christian, our judgment is behind and the world's is ahead. The Christian says, my judgment is behind me. I deserved to be punished. So I don't feel superior to anyone. But I realize there will be a judgment. So I will engage lovingly with the world around me. You read that again. My, this is what the Christian can say. My judgment is behind me and I deserved full punishing judgment. So I don't feel superior to anyone. But I realize there will be a judgment and so I will lovingly engage with the world around me. 
Just some questions to help us begin to drill this into our lives today and tomorrow, and then we'll close. Question one, how do you handle being judged all the time? How do you handle being judged all the time? You see, modern society, the New York Times, liberalism wants to say, there's no judgment, we don't believe in judgment. There's no right, there's no wrong, do as you please. Seriously, being judged all the time, all the time, by our looks, by our bank account. If you're at work, you're being judged all the time by your productivity. Are you adding value? I spoke to someone just this week who works for a well-known firm in the financial service industry in London, and he was saying, we're told that we can be honest and authentic and, uh, about our struggles, but we know we, we can't really, because it'll count against us. Being judged all the time in the workplace. Our waistline, our age, our clothing, the state of our references and our CV on the sports field, we're being judged all the time. We need, come on, we must accept that. Society is continually judging us. My question is, how will you handle that reality? How do you handle that reality? That's the reason, like I think about this week, so it's a small example, but that's the reason I get so angry sometimes on the squash court. Because I hate the fact that the other guy thinks he's better than me. <laughs> and he's frankly just proved himself to be that. I hate that thing about there's been a judgment's been passed and I've got to go to the shower and the judgment's been passed. I hate that. It's only a small example, but we are being, a judgment are being passed on our character and on our skills and our productivity and on our worth all the time. How will you, how do you handle that? The Christian can say, my judgment is in the past. I'm absolutely loved. God has judged Jesus for me. I don't have to be defensive. <laughs> All of my injustice has been paid for fully. That tells me that I'm fully loved, fully accepted. If you're a Christian this morning and you don't know that, other things will judge you. The stock market, other people, your waistline, the mirror, whatever it might be. Second question, how do you deal with injustice? How do you deal with injustice? Might be injustice against you. How do you deal with injustice on you, upon you? Some of you have suffered significant injustice. Maybe things that you would barely whisper to anyone. The Christian can say, there is a judge. It will be paid for, but the judge is not me. That is life-changing. If you've really suffered injustice, unless you know there is a judge and it's not me, you may not literally wreak violence with the sword, but you will feel bitterness and anger and resentment and you may as well wreak violence with the sword. The Christian can say, there is a judge. It will all be put to rights. And that judge is not me. And what about tackling injustice. Some of you are passionate about tackling injustice. There's the, the day on the 17th of October which will help and equip us to be able to know how to be a church that can bring justice where there is injustice, fairness where there is unfairness. A Christian can live with integrity and be bold and go after injustice because he or she knows that in the end God is going to win and do so humbly 
and with forgiveness and without feeling the need to prove yourself. When I see occasional injustice in my neighborhood, it's not always that gospel that causes me to go and tackle it. I want to go and prove myself to be better somehow. I do that often, not often, but sometimes I've done that. I want to go and intervene in a situation outside of the tower block. Why? To somehow show that I'm actually deep down, I'm a morally better person. Can you not see that? The gospel says I can live with integrity and be bold and go after it. Maybe even give my life for it. But I'm doing so confident in the knowledge that one day God will put all things to rights. He will win. And I do so humbly and with forgiveness, knowing that I have been greatly forgiven. Only if you know that you are living between two judgment days, yours in the past and the world's in the future, can we live like that. We're going to close there and share communion together. I mentioned last week we're going to share communion uh, every week uh, during the course of this series as we look at one aspect each time of the gospel and what it does for us. And communion is a wonderful ritual I know we're a bit nervous about the word ritual, but rituals can be good things if they remind us of truth. And communion reminds us of truth. But as you eat the bread and dip it into the wine and eat the wine as well, I want you to specifically take time to contemplate what happened to make this possible. What happened was the judge didn't stay on the bench observing us in our plight with weeping and with warning, he descended and received judgment himself. Broken bread, broken body, shed wine, shed blood. That was possible. A, because we have a judge and B, because he received judgment. He did make sure justice was done. He will ensure justice was done. I really encourage you to take time to to literally chew over that specifically. What does it mean for me? What does it mean for my desire for justice? What does it mean with how I deal with injustice against me or those that I love? How do I interact with a world that is judging each other all the time? I want you to specifically hone in to this one gospel narrative, if you like. If you're here today, you're exploring the Christian faith, you're asking some questions. I hope you know how welcome you are. You shouldn't feel under any pressure at all to take communion. I'd encourage you to be thinking whilst we're taking communion. Why are these people doing this? Why is this meal so significant? What do they believe? Is Jesus really a judge? Is he really going to hold me to account for the state of my heart? Is he really offering for me to come and have the blessings of the judgment he's taken? Communion works uh, quite smoothly now, I think. It's wonderful the way that our team serve us. There's uh, bread and wine to my left and to my right, and there's uh, juice and gluten-free at the back, if that's your preferred option. So when you take it, we're going to sing two songs together. You can come down at any point you wish. It's not ritualistic. It's a ritual, but it's not ritualistic. You can uh, sit and pray and with yourself, with your spouse, with the person you came with, however it works for you. But in, in those two songs, 
Let's take time to let the significance of this wonderful ritual of communion sink in. Can we stand? I'm going to ask Emma and Robin to come and help us. We're going to sing a song called Before the Throne of God Above. I have a perfect plea. And I can't remember the lyrics, but fortunately, they'll come up behind me in a second. (laughs) Jesus, we do declare actually our need for a judge. We thank you so much that we're not just in a life of endless, meaningless litigation with ourselves and our others. There is a judge. He is on the bench. He will decide and perfectly decide what is right and wrong and deal with all injustice perfectly. We thank you for that, Jesus. We thank you so much that when we put our faith in you, we come into all the goodness and the reality of our own judgment being behind us, knowing we could never have earned it ourselves. And we want to move forward as Christians, being like you, Jesus, weeping and warning our way through the workplace and our communities. It will look different, Jesus, for all of us. It might look dramatic, it might look subtle, but help us to be like you, Jesus. To love this world so much that we point them towards you, the God who was judge, is judge, and the God who was judged himself on our behalf. We worship you, Jesus, on your throne above. Amen. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong.